Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he is jealous, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the evil, the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Can you hear me now? <laughs> That's our text for today. I don't know if you noticed. It's a very encouraging text. Uh, James, uh, all throughout this book, has kind of used these transitions as he goes through, as he changes subjects. He uses a lot of times, you know, my uh, dear brothers and sisters, my beloved brothers and sisters, uh, to kind of transition between the topics. But here, in this passage, we're kind of presented with an interesting and kind of new type of language. Uh, To transition, he uses, you adulterous people. Not, uh, not in a, a super encouraging way to start a passage. It's typical James fashion. Throughout this book, we've seen this kind of type of encouraging words that he's kind of given us. I think we're all a little bit warmed maybe to be called adulterous right at the start. Kind of perks our ears anyway that he would use this language, that he would change his language so harshly should show us that he really is trying to get our attention. He wants us to hear what he has to say. And he, throughout this text, we also see things like grieve and mourn and to turn our laughter into, and our joy into gloom. So I hope you guys are excited about this message. If you had a long week, this is going to be a really good one for you. But there's also in this passage grace. And I hope that today... Throughout this message, that we'll leave here with this message, this truth of seeing a loving God, a gracious God in this text. Now to start, let's look at this word adulterous. What is adulterous? Now first of all, we know that this was written a long time ago, thousands of years ago, to people that have long passed away. So we can first maybe want to just lean to, well, he was talking to them, they were adulterous, but certainly not us today, right? Not us. Definitely not us. When we hear this word, it conjures all sorts of different ideas. Adulterous. It's such a strong and harsh word. What does he mean by this? What is James trying to say? Are we today an adulterous people? What is adulterous? Well, in the broadest sense of the word of adulterous, it's Someone who is a breaker of promises. Somebody who's broken their promises. 
And to see it, I think, most clear, we can look at the opposite of this word, the antonym, a good antonym would be faithful, to be faithful. So what James is really saying to us right at the beginning to grab our attention and to kind of throw this in our face, you adulterous people, he's saying you breaker of promises, you're breaking your promise. You are an unfaithful people. Now most notably, I think when we hear this idea of adulterous, when we hear this idea uh, of being a promise breaker, being unfaithful, I think we're going to, our mind is going to be drawn to marriage and the image of marriage. If a husband or a wife is unfaithful, is adulterous in the relationship, if they've gone out and sought the company of others away from their spouse, they're unfaithful. They've broken their promise. They've broken the vows that they made in that commitment. It's until death do you part. Not until I get bored. Not until I find something better. Not until I want something more. It's until death. And so this is the image that James is starting to pull for us. And this image is something that we see. Is, it's not new to James. It's something we see throughout the Bible and we see it prominently in the Old Testament. This idea of the comparison of the relationship between God and his people like a marriage. Now we see this, if this is new to you, if you've never heard this, it can feel a little odd. Uh, but it is used throughout the Bible. And we see it in the Old and New Testament. But most prominently we see it in the books of the prophets. Again and again this image is used. There's a whole book in a whole uh, book in the Bible that is kind of devoted to this concept. But I just want to point out one particular one that kind of shows us that it is, that I'm not, it's not just me saying this, it is actually in the Bible. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the creation. So here's just one depiction of this image of a marriage. And we today are God's people. As Christians, when we call ourselves believers, we are God's people. And in the New Testament, we see this same image portrayed as the body of Christ is the bride of Christ. That we, together as the believers, as all of us together, not just one or two, not just this church or that church, but all of us are united as the bride of Christ. So this is, a, again, not a new concept or something that's unique to James alone. And I think we have to understand this to be able to understand all of the other aspects of this text and kind of how he's, I believe, drawing really strongly from this imagery. And it's not that uncommon for us to think about our connection with God in a relationship. We always talk about it, my relationship with God is going good or going bad. Or It's always this kind of concept, this aspect of a relationship in our modern understanding, our modern uh, terminology of Christianity is a relationship with God. And if it is a relationship, then we can look at what is the nature of this relationship. What is the nature of our relationship with God? So what is a marriage? If we take this one concept of a marriage, what are we really, what is the root of this? Because it's not the only image that we see 
in the Bible, and it's not the only image we're going to see in this text, of our relationship between God. So what is the core? What is the connector? Well, a marriage is a promise to be faithful. It's a promise to be faithful. It's a covenant with someone. James is trying to wake us up to this idea, this truth, that, hey guys, maybe you're breaking your promise with God. Maybe you're being unfaithful in your relationship with God. Or at least, hopefully for us today, probe the question of, am I an adulterous person in my relationship with God? Am I faithful to Him? Imagine if a friend came to you and she or he told you that their marriage is going rough and that their spouse has been going around with other people and cheating on them constantly and they ask you, what do I do? Are you going to tell them, hey man, come on, that happens, you know, sometimes people got to do the thing that they got to do, you know, they got to try new things. They can't just be with one person forever. They can't be stuck in that. No, we wouldn't say that. We'd say, get out of there. Don't put up with that. And yet, we are so, at times, unfaithful to God. And we show no regard for His love and His relationship with us and our unfaithfulness to Him. In Jeremiah 3... 20 says but like a woman unfaithful to her husband so you israel have been unfaithful to me declares the lord when it comes to being faithful or unfaithful if we think about a relationship if we think about someone we know who's in a relationship it's easier for us to grab this concept because i think we tend to think our relationship with god is something somehow much different much more abstract and much more Uh, what he offers us and forget our requirement of being faithful to him but when it comes to this idea there is no middle ground you can't be kind of faithful you can't like cheat a little bit well you know i'm mostly faithful if somebody said i'm mostly faithful to my wife that does not sound like faithful that sounds like unfaithful Nobody wants to be in a relationship where somebody is mostly faithful. We want to be faithful fully. And we are in a relationship with our Father, with God, in this covenant. And we have this daily choice to make, to be faithful or not. Now, what are we unfaithful with? Well, the text tells us in verse 4, I'll read again. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, this word enmity is incredibly strong. I want to read to you guys the definition. It says, a state of feeling or a state of feeling or active opposition or hostility. Man. That is not a place I want to be in my relationship with God. So here we also see this shift in relationship to friendship. But the question is the same. The core is the same. 
Have we been faithful in that friendship? It's the world or God is what James is saying. To choose the world is to be unfaithful to God. And it makes us an enemy of God. To be in opposition, to be in hostility against him and toward him. That's not a place we want to be. This is, I know this is a heavy message. I hope it is. I hope it's something that may, causes us to be reflective on ourselves. But I promise there's some good bits towards the end. Now to better understand this idea, again, we're going to this core. What are we talking about? We're talking about faithfulness. We're talking about being faithful in the covenant we have with them. But it uses this word friendship. And I think at first we can be like, okay, friendship, that seems like not the same as marriage. Like marriage definitely seems much more uh, intimate, much more extreme in its commitment. But I think this is because we've lost sight of what friendship means. So what is friendship when we're talking about with God or with the world, as the text points out? Well, just to be clear, God is not interested in being your Facebook friend. That is not what friendship means. It's not, uh, and I think today, again, many people in this day and age have no clue, have no idea of what real friendship is, have no experience with real friendship. Many people don't know what friendship is. We're surrounded by acquaintances, people who know a little bit about us, but not enough to really have an impact in our lives. And God's not interested in being our acquaintance. He doesn't want to just know us when we have time, occasional barbecue. He wants something deeper. And we've fallen really far, I think, today in our understanding of what friendship means. Friendship at the time that this was written, and for most of human history, interestingly enough, only recently has friendship really kind of gone downhill in what it means and its intimacy. But throughout most of human history, it meant a lot more than it does now. It meant sharing everything, both physically and spiritually. Friendships lasted for generations. Families would be, uh, through a friendship of, that formed generations ago, the families would grow because of it together. And it also happens with fights. There's definitely some famous family feuds that have gone on for generations. But friendships had a deeper and deeper meaning and a deeper value than I think we might think when we hear the word friendship, a word that we hear so often, friend, is uh, thrown around. So I want you guys to understand that when he uses friendship, he's not belittling the depth of the commitment. Even Jesus had all of his disciples, hundreds of disciples altogether that followed him. But he only had three that were, he was intimate with. He had three that were close. They were the ones that were there when he wept in the garden and said, come and, and pray with me. He only had the few that he really opened up to. And that is so important for us to have. It's so important for us to have this deeper connection in relationships. So, Again, pointing out that when the text talks about friendship, it's meaning something much more than what we might Im immediately think of. 
David and Jonathan in the Old Testament are a great example who went into covenant with one another. In fact, three times they renewed their covenant with one another. They protected one another. They gave all that they had to one another. Nothing that they owned they would call their own. Everything was equally owned by the other. And David honored his covenant with Jonathan. Again, we see this idea of for generations, Jonathan's son is put in the kingdom or in the uh, palace in a high position long after Jonathan has passed away. He's honoring the covenant he had with Jonathan. Friendship is not about demanding something from the other person. It's a surrendering of ourselves. That's what friendship really should look like. It's what can I give? Because not in all friendships are not all equal. We're not all equal in, in who we are and what we can bring at different times and different situations. And so it's about surrendering what we have to bring to the table. And God, in our friendship with Him, surrendered His Son to bleed and to die, to suffer for our sins. That is a big thing to bring to the table. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Boy, that is the kind of relationship you want to have a friendship with. Somebody who gives even his own son for our greater good. God has also granted us in our relationship with him all good things, right? He's placed a new heart within us. He's placed a new spirit within us. We've been given the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in our lives. All good things fall into coming from God, especially in our relationship with him. So that we have common grace. I don't know if you guys know this. There's common grace and then there's kind of the grace that we have in our relationship with him. So common grace means everybody who's alive is experiencing common grace because they're alive. Because they have been given the, the ability to see the sunset and the ability to take a breath, their health, their life. Which is why even wicked people in the world are blessed with common grace. But God in our relationship with him gives us so much more. He laid his son down, and as we receive that, we have eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit that empowers us and strengthens us in all that we do. Will we ever be able to bring an equal portion to the table of the gifts that God has brought? No, of course not. But that's not what he's asking us to do. Friendship is about giving. And God is not asking for an equal return. He only asks that we choose friendship with him over the world and to be faithful to him. It's for this reason that he is a jealous God that we saw also in the text. Verse 5. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he caused to dwell in us? What is God's jealousy? Well, that is a huge topic that we won't have time to get into. But, in short, God's jealousy is his yearning for our loyalty, our honor of his name, and our faithfulness 
to the commitment and the covenant we have with him through Jesus Christ. But God is not some needy tyrant. He's not some king sitting on a throne wanting everything he can get from his people, needing our attention. He doesn't need anything from us. We're in a new covenant with him. Again, through Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. And God is after only our faithfulness in that, in that covenant we have with him. He doesn't need anything from us. There's nothing that you have that you could give to God that isn't already his. It's all his anyway. Everything that we have, our very life, could be taken from us in a second. God doesn't need it. It's already his. Our praise, our worship, our admiration, he doesn't need those things. If he wanted, he could reveal himself in just the tiniest sliver of who he is, and we would all be on our faces right now. He doesn't need those things. He doesn't need our money, our possessions, our talents, our abilities. He gave us those things. He doesn't need them. The truth is, it is because it is for our good and out of his love for us that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us. There's nothing that he needs. It is for our good. It's a good deal for us because God's friendship extends into eternity. The world's friendship feels really good for a moment. It's a fleeting pleasure. But then the world spits us out and gives us only death as a payment for our loyalty. But God grants us eternal life, eternal friendship, and love and grace and joy and peace. And we could go on. God wants us to choose him over the world because it's for our best. Because he has given us all things. And in that, God Almighty, who grants us everything that we have, calls us friend. And when we leave this relationship and we choose the world and what it has to offer us, we profane the name of God and the gift that he's given us. We re- we're rejecting the work of the cross that was done for us, again, given to us in our covenant with God. And we are then being unfaithful toward a God that has never given up on you. He's always been there for you. And he's always been faithful to you and faithful to his word. So is it not then crazy when we think of all the things that we've been given, all the things that we've received from God, is it not then crazy that he would ask so so little of us that we would only be faithful in return. That's such a small thing in comparison to all that we've received. And I know, I've had my experiences. Maybe some of you say, well, I've been, I'm, I'm in an in-between state. I'm, you know, some, I'm living half in the world and half for God. And that's why James uses this term, double-minded, <laughs> And he uses it several times throughout the, the book of James. Can I go back? How can I stay faithful? How can I stay faithful to the promise? James says in verse 
7 and 8a, the first part of verse 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. It's the choice. It's like we saw last week. We're born in, with a selfishness. We're born with a wickedness in us because we're part of the world. And it's a fallen world that we live in. And Jesus says, you have to daily deny you, deny yourself, and then we can follow after Christ. And here, this resist the devil. I want to be very clear on this because I think it's an interesting phrase. Because I don't believe that we can stand and resist the devil on our own. You can't resist him and he's just going to go away because you don't want him to be there. I mean, who the heck are you? Why should he worry about who you are? Who are you? I didn't put this in my notes, but there's a really good example of this. When some apostles uh, or some people in, the, in Acts, they go and they're trying to cast out demon and, a demon and they get beaten so bad that they don't have any, that they get their clothes beaten off them. And then when Paul comes and saves the day... <laughs> The demons are like, hey, we, Paul, we know. We know this Jesus, but who are you? We don't know you. Who are you to resist the devil? It's only when we look at these verses together that I believe it begins to make sense. Because you have two options. You can have friendship with the world, or you can have friendship with God. And when we press toward God, when we choose Him, when we choose to be to seek faithfulness to that covenant we have with Him, what does it say? He comes near to us. As we come near to Him, He comes near to us. And it's this action that is the action of resisting the devil. And then He will flee from you. But not because of you, but because of who is with you. If you're drawing near to God and God's drawing near to you, yeah, then the devil's going to flee because of who's with you. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us if God is for us? If you're struggling with temptation of the world, if you're feeling under attack by the devil, resist him and he will flee from you. But the action of resisting, how do we do that? By drawing near to God, by pressing into Him, by seeking a faithfulness to Him, by living faithfully. And why will the devil then flee from you? Because God can totally kick the devil's butt. Fact. Jesus already did. Jesus went and defeated the devil's greatest power and greatest authority that he has over you. He defeated death in the resurrection. And through that, we don't have to be afraid of death even, which was his greatest tool against us. So as I draw near to God, and God draws near to me, the devil's not going to hang around. It's what we looked at in in chapter 2 of James he says, uh, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And let me tell you, 
they shudder at the name of Jesus Christ when it is spoken by somebody who is faithful. Because somebody who's living faithful, God's not over there. God's right there near them. As they've drawn near to God, God has drawn near to them. And that has power. I think of when I was a kid, I remember my sister came to me once and had confessed to me that she had been telling some bullies at school that if they kept messing with her, her big brother was going to come and like totally kick, her, kick their butts. So I was like, well, thanks for that. <laughs> so, but it's that kind of concept. Man, if God's with me, who can be against me? Draw near to God and the devil will flee from you. That is what resisting the devil is. It's not standing your ground and trying really hard not to make the wrong decision. That will fail. That's the law. But with God, as I draw near to him, man, I have power in the name of Jesus. I have power because of who's with me, not because of who I am. In verse 6, first part of verse 6, but he gives us more grace. I think this is the heart of the text. He gives us more grace. Romans 6.14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. He gives us more grace. Where does that grace come from? It comes from God. So come near to him, and he will give you that grace. We will receive the grace that is needed. And sin is not your master if God is. And he calls us friend. And with God, it's never too late. I was like, I want to emphasize the other side of this, that it's never too late to come back, to come to him. And sometimes there are weeks where I have to come back more than once. But his mercy is renewed every morning. Thank God. The other side of verse 6. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Well, the proud are the ones that are trying to stand their ground on their own or thinking that they know what's best, thinking that their way is right. God's not, God's not near them. That's, he's like, I, I, if you think you can do it, then go for it, buddy. Simply humble yourself. And go to him. The door is always open. And here is where I think we see this word really make the most sense. God jealously longs to see us come through the door. He jealously longs for the spirit that he's put within us. He longs for us to come back to him. He's never hoping you don't. He longs for you to come back. Most of us know the image of the prodigal son wanted to do his own thing, went his own way, was like, Dad, I don't need you. Just give me my money. I'm out. He chose friendship with the world. He chose his relationship. His loyalty was going to be to the world and what the world had to give him. And it was probably really fun for a while. But he lost everything. And the world paid him in full, as it always does, giving nothing back. And it's not a fun place to be. It's a humble place to be, to go back to the one you've betrayed. And when we choose the world, and we, it's, it's humbling in itself to come back to God. But that's what God is saying. That's why, that's why these are connected. 
You have to humble yourself to go back to him. It's the way it works. It's only in humble submission to God that this relationship can be restored. But let me tell you, that moment that you choose that, that you say, I don't want, I don't want what the world has anymore. I want you, God. That right there is the action of, hum, of humbling yourself. I was wrong. I want you. Man, I'm telling you, he's jealously waiting. There's no I told you so. There's no about time. There's no it's too late, man. Sorry, door's closed. God doesn't do that. There's only more grace. He leaps up and runs and embraces us and welcomes us back as he's been so jealously longing for us to make that decision, to choose him. How do we humble ourselves? James' cry throughout the text is, uh, reaches its pinnacle here in verse 8 through 9. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. All throughout this book, we've seen this image depicted here the most prominently. A call to repent, a call to humble yourself, a call to turn to God. And James' belief, I think, is clearly stated in this. That true salvation, a true faithfulness and relationship with God will produce a fruit of repentance, always. Because we'll see ourselves. And I, we know that in this letter that he wrote to these people that they had chosen friendship with the world. We don't, it doesn't say it directly, but we know it by the things that uh, James has to address their selfish ambition, their envy, their gossip, their favoritism towards the rich. These are all byproducts of, the friend, of friendship with the world. And he's saying, and this is written to churches, and I think there's an emphasis of protecting the church from what the world will produce in us. We're in this new covenant with God through Christ. And when we are, we will see this fruit. We'll see our sin, our shortcomings, and our failures. And that's not fun. That's humbling. That's the prodigal son realizing, I don't have any money. And like the servants, even the pigs, even the animals were better treated at my father's house. Maybe he'll let me be a servant or a slave in his family. But in that moment, we also see a need for a Savior. We need Him. Joel 2.12 says, Even now, declares the Lord, even now, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. The Puritans, although a bit odd on some issues, did, I think, get this right. Because they talk about this idea of even in their prayer time, praying for tears. Praying that their sin would be revealed to them. David talks about this. Reveal that God would reveal his heart to himself. That he would know where he's messing up. 
so that we, he didn't, they don't find themselves going the wrong way on accident. And there is something important in seeing these and feeling the weight of them. Today, we want to feel good. We want the, we want the joy. We want the happiness. We want, we want the love. We want all the good. But we don't want the other side of it. We don't want the mourning, fasting, weeping. You can, you can keep that. I'm good. But we need this too in our lives because this is a sign of a humble, repentant heart. And we don't have to get stuck in that. We know that a day is coming where all tears will be wiped away. All sadness will be turned to joy. That's our eternity. That's our eternity. So think about that. So life is like this little tiny thing and then eternity. So do you think no matter what you experience in your life, that in like 10,000 years from now, you're going to be like still thinking about it, still struggling with it? No, probably not. Probably not. So there is a scope we can also find hope and encouragement in. Until that day, though, we need to be watchful of our own hearts and to weep over our sins when we're sinning against God, when we're unfaithful to the relationship, the covenant we have with Him. And yes, I know we're forgiven. I know that we have freedom in Christ. I know that. I feel that freedom. It's why we can walk, we can choose where we want to go. We can choose friendship with the world or we can choose friendship with God. We have a choice. We have freedom in our relationship with Christ. We also have freedom. But I can tell you from me, it is because of the freedom that I've been given, because of everything that God has poured into me, that I weep over my unfaithfulness to a perfect God my unfaithfulness to one who's always been faithful to me, who's loved me unconditionally, supported me no matter what. That's why I weep over my sin, because I'm being unfaithful to him in that relationship. In closing, again, I want to read this, but he gives us more grace. In verse 6, he gives us more grace. All that we need in order to choose God, has been given to us. Augustine says it really short and, I think, uh, easy to remember. God gives what he demands. God gives what he demands, meaning he requires our faithfulness in the relationship, and he gives us the grace and the mercy that we need for that to be possible. In verse 10, he kind of caps this idea Humble yourself before the Lord. Again, he's crying to us. And he will lift you up. So when we humble ourselves, we will feel the weight of our sin. We will see our need for Christ in our lives. And when we then go to him, he will lift us up. This is the joy we receive in the midst of our trials in the midst of our pains. This is the smile on my face when I know that I'm not good enough, when I know that I'm struggling. I have joy because God lifts me up. As I've drawn near to him, he draws near to me.
I'll invite the band to come up as we're going to do one last song together. God will lift us up. God is our Father, our Redeemer. We have a covenant relationship and friendship with Him, and He will always faithfully be there, and He will always faithfully lift you up. So this song that we're going to sing was specifically selected to tie in with this. To, I don't want to encourage you as we sing this to just remember of God's great love for us and his commitment to us. And I would encourage you, if you need to, to take time to renew that covenant. We saw, I, I mentioned it, David and Jonathan, they renewed their covenant three times, even though it didn't seem like it was necessary. We can renew our covenant with him and just commit ourselves to him. So I would encourage you, if you need to, this would be a, a time to do that. And if you need prayer, uh, there'll be some people over here. I will be on over there at least <laughs> to pray with you if you need.